0: Welcome to Deep Breath In, the new podcast series from the BMJ sponsored by Medical Protection that tackles the everyday challenges of being a GP. Today's episode is all about fear. We're going to try and understand how fear affects our practice and what we can do about it. We'll hear from Iona Heath, the former RCGP president, and Danielle Offrey, author of several books about medical error and fear. And we'll also get some escapism at the end of the programme with our regular feature, Deep Breath Out. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ.
1: I'm navjot Lader, a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP.
2: And I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor from the US based in Cambodia, and also a clinical editor for the BMJ.
0: Great. Um, good, to, good to see you all guys online. Um, hope you're all staying safe. Um, I wanted to start the episode really. I think we should explain that we'd planned this episode well before coronavirus was, was really upon us. Um, uh, but it just makes all the more sense, I think, that we talk about the fear because fear is sort of everywhere at the moment, isn't it? Um, how are you all finding it, Nafjoy? How is your fear levels?
1: Yeah, I mean, vary, varying levels of fear, but generally quite afraid, I would say. <laughs> I mean, uh, like at every level. So, um, you know, thinking personally about my parents and my family and then professionally as well like feeling like there's a lot of new guidance and there's a lot of new things to do and obviously there's a level of risk now involved in seeing patients and potentially transmitting um, a disease to your patients and so that fear has kind of infused all of that in terms of trying Mm. to keep up to date and trying to make sure you're doing the right thing um so yeah it's a lot I would say
0: yeah pretty scared and Jenny how, how are you doing
2: Uh, similarly quaking in my boots. I think (laughs) that, you know, there is just so much uncertainty and that adds to a lot of the anxiety that many of us are feeling, you know, as Nevjoit said, personal concerns about friends and family members, um, concerns about, you know, patient care, um, also kind of questions around when the world will return to a new normal when normal life kind of will resume. And, um, frankly, what the impact on politics will be, um, I know that's a topic for many people, uh, right now. And some of the choices that we're making, um, now give me a lot of fear and anxiety because so many things are unknown so is it okay if my kid has a play date today who am I unintentionally exposing that I have no idea about um, yeah I think there's a lot to be afraid of right now mm.
0: yeah and uh, I, I would feel I echo all that really I feel the same um, but actually I, feel, I looking back I think I had a different type of fear and maybe anxiety a few weeks ago like back in February time when you know there was a sense of almost anticipation and dread and I don't know I feel like things in my mind at least have changed now that it's here um in some ways I feel a bit better now I don't know if you've had a similar experience or
1: yeah I think definitely I mean this is from a UK perspective but since we've moved into this kind of lockdown period it feels like that you know we're, we're doing what we can in terms of the kind of uh, social distancing side of things and that we're you know you can actively see the plans being made and happening being enacted um around you so it's that that idea that you know taking action it can mitigate some of that fear that for sure is happening um but I th- I think that fear has not gone for me it's just changed into something else um now it's about you know feeling ready for what's coming and what's happening
0: yeah and maybe for me the, the time I feel the fear less is is when I'm doing something so when I'm at work on the phone to someone um you know, obviously not seeing them in person but on the phone to a patient or um doing something at the practice that, that feels like we're getting ahead of things or getting on top of things. I I find that very, very comforting in in, in a strange way.
2: Hmm. I I think one of the things that compounds anxiety right now is the fact that different countries are at different places in their epidemics. And, you know, different people might have responded differently to reports coming out of China compared to reports coming out of Italy, I think. Um, But here in Cambodia, as I mean, who knows it, We're there's you know uh, there are a lot of questions around whether there's current local transmission so far um the vast majority of our cases have been imported and then contacts of those imported cases and so we're kind of living with this daily anxiety of you know when is it going to start when are we going to start seeing the first deaths and the severe, the first severe cases and that is really scary.
0: And I suppose all these uncertainties and questions and maybe with things like social media as well, like there's always somebody you can find if you spend long enough scrolling who will um, add to your fear.
1: Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing a lot of doom scrolling and just um, feeling like the more information I can consume about it, the less kind of afraid I'll be because I'll know more about it. But yeah, as you've said, it's often having the opposite effect, because I'm hearing people, you know, what I think are legitimate fears about, you know, people worried, particularly healthcare workers worried about their safety at work, you know, do they have the right personal protective equipment? Um, Is our government making the right decisions about what we're doing? Why aren't we testing more? Um, All of these things are, you know, so there's this kind of, uh, like 24 hour news cycle and constant access to opinion on social media, I think means it's just It's sort of unrelenting, um, unless you're very disciplined about when you choose to engage with it, which unfortunately I'm not, (laughs) not at the moment anyway.
0: So that's, um, I guess we've been talking about this personal fear that I suppose everyone has at at the moment, you know, for family members or just about how everything seems to have changed forever. Um, But there's also the professional fear and and that's when we come onto our interviews, what we're gonna be kind of looking at a bit more closely. Because um, I guess the, the the fears that you might have as a clinician, trying to make the best decision with your, your patients, is is greater than ever.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there are so many levels to this. You know, there's am I making good decisions with respect to patients who potentially or likely or do have COVID? Am I making the right decisions with respect to my patients that I'm advising to stay? Home. So all of us have probably had to um, come up with or have encountered or are enacting triage guidelines right now. And so there, you know, now more than ever, there is this um, fear or uncertainty about missing something. Um, And we spoke a little bit last time about, you know, Teleconsultations and being relatively reassured about the quality of those visits, but I, I think there's a whole new level of decision making hap- decision making happening now, and and having to weigh the risk of telling somebody to stay home um, for fear that they are exposed to coronavirus in the healthcare setting.
0: So let's look a bit more at this subject of, of our own fear or clinical fear with our interviewees. Uh, we've got two angles coming up. Um, I talked to Iona Heath about where that fear kind of comes from, and then later we've got an interview that that, that Jenny recorded with um, Danielle Offrey.
2: And I spoke to Danielle about how we can try to mitigate the fear that we have of missing things in our patient encounters.
0: So let's go to our first one now. So that's me talking to Iona Heath.
3: I'm Iona Heath. I was a GP in Kenji Town in London for almost 35 years. And I uh, was involved with the Royal College of GPs for many years, was president towards the end of my uh, life as a GP. And um, I've written quite a lot for the BMJ and for other... Channels.
0: I just want to ask you to sort of cast your mind back to those you know, when you were practicing gP for thirty five years and mm-hmm. how much do you feel that sense of fear on your in your day to day work
3: um, i don't think you can afford to let yourself feel too much fear i I, I definitely feel fear in felt fear in a, acute situations, mm. for example, you know we have a 14-month-old with an anaphylactic shock after a cashew nut. Now I can feel very frightened in that sort of situation. Mm. Um, those situations are very good to be a training practice where you've got young doctors who've just come out of A&E. Um, and the older doctors can move slightly more mm-hmm. slowly <laughs> towards, the, towards the crisis. So, so, but I think in, in day-to-day work, it's important to try and minimise the amount of fear Mm. you make you you feel because i think it distorts your judgment
0: Mm. about so i guess i think in in my practice um i think as i've been qualified for longer now six or seven years i I think i feel it less but i still be times where something about the interaction or the consultation was sort of probably getting my internal fear levels up whether it's the the patient or the or the presentation, but not necessarily an, an acute one, but the, you know, you, you're noticing your mind's sort of starting to worry about what might, what you might miss or something. It's, it...
3: And I think it's really useful to think of that in that, what's it called, where you you mirror the patient's emotion. Because uh, I, I think if you're feeling frightened, yeah. they're definitely feeling frightened. <laughs> yeah, so it's almost a, think...
0: a trigger in your, your it's a thing you, you can make a note of, the fact that you're feeling that and, yes. and, and, um, and use it. Pr- yes, possibly. exactly.
3: Yeah. The other one is the anger. Yeah. I think it's uh, and the link between anger and fear. The angry patient mm. is nearly always frightened. Mm. A lot of anger I think in in society is is, is fear driven.
0: So moving on then to the to the uh, the essay you wrote in the BNJ, which was about um patient fear but in particular doc fear amongst doctors yes. and sort of the effects that can have on or broader effects. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Essay.
3: okay um i think it's all jeffrey rose's fault the great hero of public health okay and his suggestion that you can do more good in terms of preventive health by shifting the bell curve than by um tr- identifying and treating people most at risk
0: okay so maybe just unpick that a little bit because I'm already a little. So, in terms of the bell, what do you mean by shifting the bell curve? Well,
3: if you take anything like blood sugar or uh, blood cholesterol or uh, blood pressure, um, the population's values are distributed over a bell curve. Okay. Okay, and you can, you can. The traditional way was identifying the most severely affected, and yeah. But Jeffrey Rose wrote this article showing that the numbers. Uh, would improve if you shifted the whole bell curve to the healthy side. OK. But the, but, he, uh, but the paper is very interesting because people only remember shifting the bell curve. He went on to say that that would mean treating a lot of people who were never going to be adversely mm. affected. And, it, and he also says that um, people would have to use fear to, to, to get people to mm. uh, cooperate with this project.
0: Interesting.
3: Which is exactly what has transpired. Okay. Um,
0: and when was that written? When, when was this paper published? Oh, um, do we get a sense 60s of sixties or seventies. Okay. So, and <laughs> the consequences of that kind of emerged over the next few decades. Exactly. Really. The pharmaceutical industry yeah. thought whoopee. Okay.
3: Um,
0: and the public public health sort of specialty also. I mean, we see a lot of fear amongst. Yeah, have you had your cough for two weeks, or various things, and usually, I guess, around cancer and things like heart disease, where go and see your GP if X. Yes, is that, exa- is that all? Sort of down to that? can we trace all that back? To I think to we that? can trace
3: a lot of it back. Yeah. Uh, and I think um, that do- doctors have been frightened, mm. and so they frighten patients in their turn. When I've talked to trainees on many occasions about guidelines mm. and of course a lot of this shifting the bell curve has been transformed into the guidelines for the treatment of chronic it's called tr- chronic diseases actually treatment of chronic risk factors um the the, the fear of deviating from guidelines mm. is huge mm. i mm. mean people think that if they deviate from a guideline then next morning they'll be in the papers mm. i mean this idea of Because the fear of doctors is also linked to the public humiliation that goes on with with doctors who are perceived to have Mm. made a mistake. Mm. But the problem with a guideline is that it completely obscures the patient.
0: Mm.
3: It's like a mask. It comes in front of the... You're there. You see the guideline. You don't see me anymore. Um, And what I want as I get older, I don't want a doctor who is just going to find the appropriate label for me and follow the guideline for Mm. that label. I want somebody who thinks about me, my predicament, my biography, my particular context, to think about what's... So I think guidelines have stopped people thinking. And it's the fear that has made the guideline so prominent.
0: Mm. Moving on to a slightly different situation, which is the cancer and the risk of...
3: Missing, being a diagnosis. A, missing a
0: diagnosis, of cancer, which I think I guess like we've all been there and yeah. missed it, and looking back, you think Oh goodness, that that doesn't look good. Why didn't I do that then? Um, I I feel that that's the biggest, perhaps the biggest fear of of being a practicing GP and um, and the devastation that can cause to someone's life. Um, is it? Do we have the same issues there? Do you think as, as we're talking about with? Things like hypertension and cardiovascular disease.
3: Well, yes. Well, we do and we don't. I think we don't. We do with cancer screening. I think we've got a real issue on mm. on how much fear we're propagating with cancer screening for limited benefit, mm. very limited benefit. Mm. Um, so there's a whole fear agenda that's driving cancer screening, and fear is definitely used explicitly. Mm. The fear of doctors about missing a new cancer diagnosis, I think, is an extremely genuine fear. Um, and we have allowed this um, expectation that you can get everything right at the first go.
0: Mm.
3: Almost without exception, I defy anybody to diagnose a brain tumour on their first presentation mm. because the overlap with normal s- or such common symptoms is so huge unless Mm. they got florid papilledema Mm. Mm. you're going to miss it first Mm. time and 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 you've got to recognize that you're going to miss it i think it just means that we all have to have very good safety netting Mm. you know never tell anybody there's nothing wrong with you ever (laughs) say i don't think there's anything wrong with you I think it's... And, and have a theory. I, I think you have to have some sort of story to tell a patient about their symptoms that may or may not be appropriate, but it it contains mm. the symptoms. And then say, but if this is not what's happening, if you're not better in a week or obviously improving in a two days or a month, mm-hmm. you must come back. Yeah. Because we, we can't be certain at this stage and we have to let time... Show us what the answer is. Yeah.
0: I think that story is <laughs> telling things interesting. I, I'm terrible at making up stories on the spot, but I know that it's a really helpful thing to do. And I've got people I work with who are much better at that than I am. And I wish I could.
3: It's re- it's really have a... it's, it's really. A, I think th- well, in a way, <laughs> I think the older you are, the better because you have more symptoms in order to <laughs> to make up stories around. So so I think that that's good, and I think it's very important to use your own body as a sort of mm. source of those of those stories. But the, but the classical young doctor who says, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I know it's not serious. Now, that is, that is a mind-bogglingly stupid thing to say.
0: <laughs> um. hey, I say that I say all the time. No, no. I, I'm sure I have said that many times. But, but, but it's, it, it's
3: absolutely hopeless.
0: So in your essay, um, you talked about what, what can actually help to reduce this fear. And you've said it's only within relationships of trust that fear can in any way be contained.
3: If the patient is afraid, if a patient is afraid meets a doctor is afraid, that's that's very difficult. But if 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 both patient and doctor are in a, a, a trusting relationship, so they they know each other, mm. it's much easier to hold fear mm. in a. And of course, then if you make a big mistake, then you blow that whole fear. But even even when you do make a mistake, it's amazing how. If you've known the patient for a long time, mm. they're, they're they're prepared to forgive you mm. to an extraordinary extent, really, because they know you've kind of demonstrated over the years that you, you're trying and you've done doing your best. and And I think that one of the unfortunate things for the current generation, well, since we since we stopped doing being responsible for out of hours. When I retired, the number of people who remembered me climbing up to a fifth floor flat when I was pregnant, see a baby in the middle of the night, you know, the, all these stories mm, that mm. I had long since forgotten, but that's what they mm. remembered. And, and, and so that, that produced a legacy of trust that it's much harder for the current generation of GPs to generate mm. 'Cause I mean we were we were reaping the benefits of doctors who did twenty four hours a day, you know, who were always on call mm. in in the fifties and sixties and then and then then we were at least doing our own and now nothing. Mm. And so it's it's harder, I think it's harder to get into that that situation where you sort of build up this this credit yep. um with with individual patients that, that is very because I think because I heard an American expert on um, litigation talking at a conference once, and he said this just made such a he was a vile man, but he made, he made this point that stuck with me all the time. he says that most people who sue their doctors have decided to sue them before anything goes wrong so you know they they think they've decided this person is a arrogant bastard and that they you know the, who doesn't listen to them and is mm. just being cavalier and they've built up a resentment so what so the most important antidote is to build a relationship mm. with the patient
0: so there we go um And that's given me an idea, I think, actually. We can start making masks out of uh, guidelines. What do you think?
2: (laughs) I and Heath would approve. Except that we don't have any guidelines on how to address the crisis. So what guidelines are we crumbling up into face masks? I don't
0: know. I can think of a few, but I won't won't say. (laughs) Um, So um, let's go through some of that then. Uh, I think the first thing that struck me right at the beginning of the interview, which I say I should say we recorded you know, really as coronavirus was breaking. So that's it, um, probably why it, we didn't obviously mention coronavirus at all there. But I think a lot of it's still relevant. Um, yeah, she said that you can't let yourself feel too much fear and that, because it distorts judgment. Um, do you agree with that, Navjoy?
1: I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree with Iona Heath, I do think. <laughs> um, and I, I could totally see oh, how, how fear can... Um, Distort the decisions you make in the care of your patients, but I think you know applying that to what we're living through right now. I think that just seems superhuman to be able to do that. I, I think there's a line between, um, you know, during a consultation, you clearly don't want to transfer your fear to a patient or to, you know, convey too too much of that um, beyond just the, you know. But we are all in this together, and um, I think that. Uh, You know, I'm a doctor, but I'm also a citizen and, you know, all the other roles that I have in my life. And I don't know that I can effectively not feel that fear. I mean, I feel that I can and, you know, still able to practice as a clinician (laughs) and able to, you know, um, do those roles. But I really worry about certain things like, um, I mean, for me, I, I the certain aspects of, you know, our role as GPs, particularly, you know, supporting patients at the end of their lives and, um, uh, or in terms of, you know, if people need admission and trying to support them in, you know, uh, navigating that and are there enough beds available, if they need an escalation of treatment, will there be an ICU bed available? Um, if they if, it looks like they're going to die at home, you know, making that happen. I think there is a lot of fear around that and uncertainty about, you know, what resources will be available, what that will look like and how it will all um play out that um you know, i really worry about sort of navigating that when the time comes. I would hope that i could be professional <laughs> um and i'm sure i'm sure i can as we were talking about before, you know, when you're in action mode, often, you know, those skills kick in. I had but um it's...
0: I had a call from a paramedic yesterday um about a patient who clearly needed admitting to hospital and, and under any circumstance any other circumstances would be admitted to hospital or at least taken um but they were you could tell the fear that they they were so torn that they felt they shouldn't be taking sick patients to hospital because there weren't enough you know there weren't any beds um yeah it was terrible so you
1: know fear to me seems like the appropriate response in that situation like and i I don't see as how you can escape that
2: yeah yeah i would tend to agree that uh, the idea that you know we can't operate if we're fearful i I understand that but i agree with navjoyed i think it's I don't know, pretty unavoidable um, for where we are right now. And I think about, you know, people I trained with and other colleagues going back to hospital medicine and acute care services right now when they've been outpatient docs in primary care or other specialties for 5, 10, 15 years. I would be terrified, you know, partly of getting something wrong, partly of, you know, the patient's suffering as a result of my inferior knowledge, but then also for my own personal health and safety and the safety of my family. Um, And I I just wanted to acknowledge the courage of so many people on the front lines right now, um, not only for going to work every single day facing what they're reporting out, but also for being honest about the fear that they're experiencing and the challenges that they've had to face. You know, so many of our colleagues who have sent their children to live with other caretakers for fear of infecting them or other family members and not knowing when they are going to hug or kiss their children again. Yeah. I think oh, I'm that...
1: getting a bit weepy, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny you
2: made me cry. <laughs> um, Jenny, that was too much. Just hold totally me yeah, down a bit, please. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me want to cry too. Yeah,
1: I mean, it is really powerful. And I think you will, I agree with you. I mean, we should be, we should be acknowledging that. And also the fact that, you know, people are like facing their fears to do that. You know, they have to overcome a huge amount. Um, and I suppose that's what, it's kind of interesting about this role that doctors have and, and you know, nurses and other healthcare staff too, about, you know, the the putting themselves at risk. You know, it's that, that fireman analogy of, you know, running into the burning building and um how you navigate that fear. I mean, yeah, I think it's incredible and
0: um Okay. Sorry, I'm getting a bit overwhelmed. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um if we just come back to a couple of other points, which I you know before we move on to the second interview, I think we'd be just um, interested to hear your thoughts on these two parts of uh, um interview. One was about you know shifting the bell curve. I know it's, it sounds a bit abstract. Maybe we're sort of too busy to be worrying about such concepts, but you know we hear all about flattening the curve, don't we? But um, less about shifting the bell curve, and it made me think about shielding. So I don't know if you've sort of heard about shielding, Jenny. It's um, so I think one and a half million people, roughly in the UK, have 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 been sh- are being shielded, which means basically they're they can't leave their homes and they're being sent food packages and other things to mm-hmm. uh, enable them to stay in their homes. And um,
2: yeah, socially isolated or physically yeah, isolating the most vulnerable, exactly.
0: to, to, but to an extreme degree. Um, I, and it just made me wonder that you know I guess this is a, a group of people who are probably never going to get coronavirus and we're using fear as a means of of um of enabling this um, this this policy it's interesting
1: Uh, isn't it how much how much does fear have a role to play or you know this kind of caution in um driving policy that we make
0: i feel like without it we wouldn't be able to you know all all the things that are happening there'd be big changes in society wouldn't be possible without um, fear
2: Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I had never heard the argument before that it was a fear agenda driving things that we take as the rule, like cancer screening and um, kind of routine checks of chronic diseases. I I, I suppose in the U.S. context, it's more um, a fear of being sued for missing things that drives a lot of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think... Iona's right obviously You're, you know we're almost never going to get it right on the first presentation or the first time and I really take her point about the importance of safety netting
0: mm. yeah I thought that that maybe to, to to round this up then I think the the last bit that she was talking about um uh, fear can only be held within a trusting relationship. You know, I thought that was that was that was really nice, and I'm, I'm sure that's true. But I don't know how applicable that is to the current crisis.
2: I was alarmed by that as well. If if this is the thing that is supposed to help, you know, ease our fear, ease patient's fear, is is the fact of a trusting relationship for all of us to fall back on, and we are now, um, you know having remote contact with people for the first time trying to build trust with people we've never seen before entering all kinds of new transient relationships then we're all fundamentally missing this opportunity to build these trusting relationships.
0: So Iona Heath talks about the problems of fear but sometimes it can be useful for a doctor. We'll hear from Danielle Offrey author of several books about medical error and fear but first our sponsor's message.
4: When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. You're always a GP, whether you're meeting up with friends, relaxing at home, or going to the gym. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice, available 24-7 in an emergency. And, because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations, with individual support that's tailored to your needs. We go beyond clinical negligence claims to offer advice and representation for GMC inquiries and coroner's inquests. We even offer CPD-accredited courses at no extra cost. It's the protection your career deserves, all under one roof. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more.
0: And now back to Danielle Offrey talking to Jen about fear.
5: My name is Danielle Ofri, and I am an internist, a general primary care doctor at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Um, I'm also a clinical clinical professor of medicine at NYU School of Medicine. I am the editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review, and on the side, I'm a writer, and my most recent book is Doing Harm, A Doctor Confronts Medical Error.
2: Wow. So I'm So thrilled and grateful to be speaking with you today um, and looking forward to hearing more about your work. So Tom and Navjoy and I were hoping to pick your brain a little bit about your interpretation of fear as a clinician. Um, For anyone who hasn't seen Danielle's amazing TED Talk, she explores this idea that fear is in some ways, necessary to keep a healthy respect of the human lives that we're trying to save or care for, while at the same time needing to manage fear when it can get out of hand. Can you say more about how you think most physicians experience fear and how it manifests for most of us?
5: Well, when we think back and probe our memories about fear, most of us will come up with The traumatic situation often in our training when something when something disastrously went wrong and um, we've panicked in the moment, if it's during a code or a patient's bleeding or there's an emergency or we've missed a major thing and we just become paralyzed by our fears and we worry that that is going to harm our patients, kill our patients and make us look like idiots but I also think that fear works on a more just general everyday level. You know, my last patient of the day came in four hours late. Mm. Um, we, you know, shouldn't see they came late. And, you know, the clinic is starting to close down. And part of me wants to say, you know what, you have to come back another day. But part of me is afraid that something, one of these balls will be dropped. There's 25 balls right. in the And I just... And, and I want to go home. My kids are waiting. My family's waiting. The nurses want to leave, but there's this fear that disaster could happen mm-hmm. if I don't cross every T and dot every I. So I, I believe it's sort of a, sort of animating impulse of how we work. And and part of the problem is that, historically, at least in our training, fear is viewed as a weakness, and those who express fear or admit to fear or show it are often uh, you know humiliated and degraded and so we learn pretty quickly not to show our fears which of course is incredibly dangerous for our patients i mean how many times we all have these stories that we've you know kind of hidden an error that we've made or a, a small miscalculation but everything's fine we'll just get under the radar the potassium wasn't too low we've managed to sneak to squeeze by mm. because we're so afraid that our fear will come out in public and will, mm-hmm. will be deleted. And mm-hmm. sometimes that conflicts with patient safety. And I would say it often does. And you know, in, in working on this book about medical error, you know, two books ago, I wrote a book on emotions, what doctors mm-hmm. feel. And in some ways, I'm writing partially the same book again because the fear mm-hmm. factor is what keeps most medical errors hidden. And I would mm-hmm. posit, although I don't have data, that the vast majority of near-miss errors, um, which I think is the largest pool of potential harms to our patients, remain hidden because nobody wants to fess up to an almost error, especially if no harm occurred. And even if mm. the harm was mild, we keep it hidden. And because of that, then our data for studying medical error is fundamentally flawed. We, we may be putting all of our resources in the wrong place. right? And, and We don't really want to address this fear side because it's kind of squishy and unscientific and doesn't code that in a spreadsheet or a bar graph. So I think these things are interrelated.
2: And I wonder if there's a parallel here um, with saying sorry, where it used to be, you know, anyone, any physician apologizing was essentially admitting wrongdoing or admitting guilt. Whereas now we know that it's much better for everybody involved and, in terms of lawsuits that are brought in the case of the United States or other litiginous societies, if actually physicians apologize. is is Does that come into play at all in this, Danielle?
5: Yes, I, I think so, because we can parse the fears um, more finely than I think we used to do. We used to see it as all bad and all a sign of weakness. And now we, um, I hope, can view it as intellectual honesty. And, mm. you know, in studies of, of patients, at least, Um, You know, in theoretical situations where they're given situations where their doctors have made an error and whether or not the doctor, you know, owns up to it and tells the error, the patient about the error, patients are more likely to stay with their doctor if they admit the error because they Mm -hmm. feel they can trust them. Because Mm -hmm. if my doctor tells me what went wrong, then I know I'm safe in the future because something else goes wrong, they'll tell me. Mm -hmm. And and I think the same can be said on a larger level. If we start to, you know, admit when we're afraid um, and when we are at risk of, doing suboptimal medicine, um, that can be viewed as courageous um, mm-hmm. and not a sign of weakness. You know, we talked a little bit about sort of the negative sides of fear, but there are some positive sides of fear. And because if we eradicate fear completely, you know, and I think that's what most of us want to do. I don't know if you remember this famous case, maybe you learned about in medical school of this woman who ultimately turned out to have some kind of lesions in her amygdala bilaterally, who did not experience fear. Mm. And it's a famous case and, and researchers tried everything. They'd bring in spiders and snakes and bring her to the haunted house. And she could recognize that those are scary things, but she did not feel fear. And as a medical student, I envied her. I wanted to be that <laughs> because I was so terrified all the time. I might hiccup and cause like some, you know, chain of events that would kill a patient. I don't know what I could do as a medical student. And I think we all feel that way. We just hate this idea of fear. But I think fear has also a salutary benefit when titrated appropriately. You know, if we completely eradicate fear, you know, we get those cowboy doctors who, you know, who will do anything. And that's really dangerous. And we, we've seen that. And hopefully now in this day and age, we look at that and say, that's not, impressive that you know that's dangerous and pathetic. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to get rid of fears completely. I mean I, I want we should have fear before you approach someone with like a six inch needle or before you click on that chemotherapy that's about to you know shoot their kidneys. You want to have a little bit of fear. And and so I try to feel like we need to negotiate an armistice with our fears. Right. And and so I like to think of my fears as a left lower quadrant abscess. Right. Away <laughs> in, in a corner. But it's a soft walled abscess, not a necrotic one, because (laughs) I I need a little bit of fear to sort of seep into my bloodstream to keep me on my toes. Right. Before I prescribe, you know, so I gave that patient, you know, citagliptin last night. Oh, and I just want a a moment of fear. Is this an okay patient? Okay. Renal function before I do it. So I don't get right. right. Let me double
2: check this. Let me look at that. Make sure your dose is okay.
5: You know, in the end, we're not dealing with widgets. We're not in boardrooms. We're not just shifting money. I mean, gosh, when the banker makes a mistake, okay, it's a disastrous financially, but it is only money. When we make a mistake and forget to check the creatinine, we can put someone on dialysis or kill them. Mm-hmm. And so we need that little bit of fear. Now, listen, every so often, the abscess is going to rupture and it's going to be the peritonitis of fears, right? <laughs> we don't know what to do. And yeah. that's when we and ask a colleague for help or if you're the colleague, you see someone in their peritonitis of fears moment and you step in and say let me take over let me handle this go you know take a moment because we are each other's keepers for each other and for our collective patients if we see right. someone in that panicked mode we step in for the safety of their patients but also for the safety of them I mean we do know that medicine has the highest suicide rate of all professions and I mm. think we look out um and, and I for these things because I I truly believe that nearly everyone in medicine, and I'll, I'll even go out and say everyone, is there for the right reasons. I mean, mm. don't go to medicine for the glory or the money. Now, right? You can get an <laughs> and make a lot more money, and not get vomit on your shoes for for decades. So <laughs> most folks have been beat out, right? So most people who are here, and even the most jaded people, or the you know the, the dermatologist driving Lamborghinis, even those folks, I think still went in the, to the profession for the right reasons and still mm-hmm. want their patients. And so when we end up with despair and burnout, of course, is a whole other topic, you know, it's not because of money or things like that. It's really because we are, we don't want to harm our patients. And we feel yeah. as though falling short. And we, so we really do need to look out for each other Um on behalf of the patients and on behalf of each other.
0: So thanks Jane, that was that was really interesting. And really interesting, slightly, slightly different point of view, really wasn't it? Or at least framed in a different way about, um, you know, the fear being a necessary thing, like you said, the positive sides of fear.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just, you know, I think there's something to that, right, you know? Elite athletes get a little performance boost by the adrenaline of race day. You know, there's no reason why, some degree, as long as, as Danielle said, um, as long as some degree of that fear is titrated, then that might, in fact, be something to um, both boost our performance and make sure that we're not taking those kind of cowboy. Um, Risks, and that we are going through the effort to double-check things and stay up-to-date on evidence and reach out to colleagues and um, and when all that fails, um, fall back on our trusting patient relationships.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I guess that's the, the, where they both align, don't they, those two interviews, those two points of view as – you know the the peritonitis of fear and the, the the fearful doctor meeting the fearful patient. You know, it's how do we you know keep the fears in check and and use them for for the benefit of ourselves and and our patients and um, yeah, I, absolutely, it's looking out for each other, remembering that we're all we're all kind of doing this for the right reasons and we all went into this for the right reasons. I quite like that point as well.
1: Yeah, I thought they were they they are like. You know, you could take away something useful from both of them. Like they are quite aligned. That you know, it's about recognizing that fear exists and it's present. So trying not to deny that, but then also knowing that can have it can have positive and negative effects. So you want not too much, not too little—a kind of Goldilocks amount, I guess. And then then it becomes about kind of coping with it. So what what are your strategies? Like like the safety netting that we were talking about, or um, as Danielle mentioned, negotiating an armistice and i think the other thing i was really struck by danielle saying was you know the the kind of the shame associated with showing fear and maybe that's something we need to work on which is just you know sharing more of the things that we're scared of because there is some strength in knowing that you know other people are in the same boat yeah
2: i wanted to share um an excerpt from uh, from an editorial that Danielle wrote after that interview had been recorded, which um, she titled
0: "Influenced by You."
2: <laughs> no, not influenced by me, but it's 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 about her experience and reflections now being in the COVID clinic, and she wrote. Um, Next month, or I guess now this month, is the 65th anniversary of Jonas Salk's announcement that his polio vaccine trial was successful, news that was greeted with almost the same depth of emotion as the end of World War II, and Albert Sabin's oral polio vaccine followed in 1961. She writes, if nothing else, the outbreak gives us a taste of the bone-deep fears our grandparents wrestled with, as well as an appreciation of their profound reverence for science and facts. The story of the coronavirus is still being written. South Korea, Italy, and China offered possibilities of how chapter one might play out, but make no mistake, there will certainly be chapters two, three, four, and more. And for me, this passage really resonated that, you know, we are facing an unprecedented global moment and uh, we have yet to begin to understand what all the fallout could be and what what the, all the repercussions might be.
1: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, that's quite hopeful. That you know, in the midst of all this fear um, that we're all feeling now, we can look to past experiences where you know there has been this um, hope and joy of of finding um, a solution to the problems.
2: There are some hopeful stories coming out of the global pandemic that we also need to recognize. The way that people are communicating more and more globally. Um, the way that people are coming together, crowdsourcing solutions, engineering, innovative approaches, um, re, kind of remaking factories in the service of everybody's effort. Um, I think the sense of global connectedness um, is something we should try to um, build on.
0: Thanks to Danielle and Iona and thank you to the band Childcare for letting us use their music you can find them on Spotify So we're nearly at the end of the episode please send us lots of stars via your podcast app and make sure you subscribe to us so you don't miss out on new episodes To get in touch use the hashtag #DeepBreathIn or email practice at bmj.com We'll leave you with our deep breath out, where we end the show with a bit of escapism to restore some order to our crowded minds. Today we're going to hear the sound of the bees from Brockwell Park Surgery, where I work. Last year, Philip Lingard, a GP at the practice, brought his swarm of bees to stay in our garden. It's been a great talking point at the practice, and it's so nice to go into the garden and see the bees at work. So we'll end with the sound of Philip, donned with full PPB, checking on the bees.